Our attire often fits the occasion in which we find ourselves. We wear what often fits the activity that we are about to undertake. We wear dress clothes perhaps to work. We wear nicer clothes. We dress nicer if we're going to go out to dinner or some occasion that we find ourselves. If we're going to maybe do some exercising, some working out, we're not going to wear a suit and tie, but we'll wear some activities that are some clothes that'll fit the activity of exercise. If we're going to do yard work, we aren't going to wear our nice Sunday clothes to get in the backyard and mow the grass, but rather we will wear clothes that fit the occasion. And as Christians, we are also called to put on clothes that fit particular occasions. Depending on where we find ourselves, we might need to put on compassion. We might need to put on Love. We might need to put on forgiveness. We might need to put on the activity of admonishing or the activity of teaching. Depending on where we find ourselves in the life of the Christian, there are various occasions which call for the taking off of particular sinful desires and the putting on and the bracing of our new identity in Christ. It is this exchange that Paul has been using as a metaphor for the sanctification process of the Christian life. Sanctification merely means the change over time, the the process of change over a period of time in the life of the believer, and Paul illustrates this exchange, this transformative process as a taking off and a putting on. That as Christians, over time, we are changed. When we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're not instantaneously changed. Our, Our behaviors don't magically transform. But over a period of time, we put off our old ways, our old thinking, our old attitudes, and we embrace what it means to live in Christ what it means to die with Christ, and what it means to live with Christ. And so this morning, we want to think about the positive exhortations. Last week, we thought about the negative, about killing sin and putting to death what is therefore earthly in us. This morning, we want to think positively. What are the virtues of the Christian life? What are the, what are the attitudes, the activity, the behaviors of a Christian? What should we expect to show up in the life of someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. More than that, what should we hold each other accountable to as members of this local church? What are the attitudes or actions or behaviors that we would expect of one another as we gather together regularly and live life together individually? Well, friend, with that in mind, I want us to consider this morning Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul makes emphatically clear that the Christian life is to be characterized by the taking off of and the putting on of certain virtues. That we are to take off the vices that were characteristic of our life before Christ and to put on these new virtues that are characterized by Christ. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to think about this, these new robes of righteousness which are ours in Christ Jesus. These are ours to embrace. These are ours to put on. And so this morning, I want us to look at three things we are to regularly put on as Christians. So if you take notes, there's three points. Number one, put on love. Put on love. Secondly, we are to put on peace. Not only are we to put on the love of Christ, but we are to put on the peace of Christ. And then third and finally, we are to put on the Word of Christ. That is, that we are to regularly and systematically put on the Word of Christ in our life together as God's people. Number one, we see here in verses 12 through 14 that we are to put on love. Now, I've summarized that because that's what the Apostle Paul did in verse 14, didn't he? He says, above all these, put on love, verse 14, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I'm going to argue this morning that if you don't have love, then you'll have none of these other virtues. That is, love is the chief virtue that everything else flows out of. You won't be compassionate if you first don't have love. But I want you to notice something here as we begin by this embracing of this new identity in Christ, what Paul always does, lest we drift into a works righteousness. In other words, listen to me now, look at verse 12, look at what Paul does. He makes clear who you are in Christ before you get busy doing anything. In other words, you have to understand your identity in Christ before you get to your behavior in Christ. To say it reversely, your behavior, your activity flows out of your relationship with God in Christ. Notice here these three characteristics that he describes in verse 12. As God's new covenant people, they are chosen, they are holy, and they are beloved. Paul makes clear that these are the foundation by which they are to put on these virtues. Number one, they are God's chosen ones. This, of course, harkens back to the Old Testament, where God set apart Israel as his chosen people. And here, as Paul made so clear in verse 11, there is no longer Greek and Jew, but now they are all one in Christ. He's reminding them that as Gentiles, they were not second-class citizens. Now, I want you to understand something. As Gentiles, which most of us are here this morning, probably 99.99% of us, maybe a few, none of us were included in these promises given to the nation of Israel, but in Christ, all those promises became ours, and such that we are God's chosen ones. We have been chosen by Him, set apart. 
Which is what Paul goes on to say with the word holy. Now often when we hear the word holy, we think morally perfect, morally right. And that is an aspect of holiness. That is that to say that God is holy is to say that He is morally perfect. And to say that we are holy in an aspect of it is that we are morally righteous, that we are morally perfect. But holiness also has the connotation of being set apart, to be consecrated. That we have been set apart as God's special creation, as God's special people, to be a particular kind of people. To be distinct and different from the world around us. To be holy means to be different. And so when Paul says that they're holy, he is saying that you ought to be different than the world around you. You ought to be set apart. More than that, he is telling them to act like what they already are, you see. They're already chosen. They're already holy. And then thirdly, we see here, they they are beloved. This is the theological truth which the gospel reminds us that we don't love God first, but that He loved us first. Because He loved us, we love. This then is the foundation for everything that follows. Friend, this morning, if you're not a Christian, uh, do not misunderstand what I'm exhorting these Christians to do. Don't misunderstand what the Bible is doing here. If you're not a Christian this morning, this passage is not for you to clean yourself up and somehow become acceptable to God. No, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says that you'll never, ever be able to be acceptable to God. You'll never do enough good deeds. You'll never give enough money. You'll you'll never do enough. As we just heard the choir wonderfully sing, not in me. There's nothing that you can do, friend, to merit God's love for you. But Jesus Christ came to this world to die the death you deserve. And if you would believe that He died for your sins, you too can be righteous as these Christians here in this room are called to be righteous. Uh, So friend, don't misunderstand that you are accepted because you're righteous. Righteousness flows from the reality of the new covenant people of God. As we heard the promise in Ezekiel 36, I will make you holy. Not because you're holy. No, you're unholy. But God promises us to be holy. Well, notice here in this passage that Paul lists in verse 12 five virtues that facilitate love. Again, if love is the chief virtue, what are these five virtues? He lists them in comparison to the five vices that he began with in verse 5. He contrasts by giving these as a list, and of course, as I said last week, this is not an exhaustive list. So don't think these are the only virtues of the Christian life. There are many others. But these all relate to relationship in the life of the local church. Compassionate hearts. That is a display of concern over another's misfortune. Uh, Of course, this is what the Bible describes as God. God is a a God of compassion. A God of mercy. To, to, To be compassionate is one who shows mercy upon another. Secondly, we see here that of kindness. One of the virtues that we are to put on is that of kindness. We have to be kind to one another. 
What a, what a strange reminder that the apostle has for the church. He says, hey friend, don't forget to be kind. Be nice. What a reminder for us this morning of how often our attitudes towards one another are just not very nice. It's like we just need to go back to kindergarten or perhaps learn to be nice to one another. You remember that, right? In kindergarten, perhaps you're a kindergarten teacher. What's the very first rule? Let's be nice to one another. That's what the Apostle Paul here is doing. Hey, Christians, remind, remember to be nice to one another. Be kind to one another. Show, show, show goodness to one another. Think of being a benefit to someone else, not just merely a hindrance. Thirdly here, humility. Of course, this virtue of humility is that of our Savior, isn't he? He modeled humility. Our Savior came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to think more about the humility of Christ, turn to Philippians chapter 2 this afternoon. Think about that. Think about the way that Christ embraced humility and invites you to. Humility is, is counting yourself less significant than you really think. Uh, friend, just as a, this is a subtle reminder, you're not the center of the universe. You know, friend, it's it just we need to be reminded of those truths. Uh, this world does not resolve, revolve around you. This church doesn't revolve around you or me but around, around Jesus. And that's what Paul here is doing. Fourthly here, we see meekness. Meekness, that, that is that, that old word that maybe we don't, we don't often think about, that, that quality of not being overly impressed with ourselves, similar to humility, but a little different. It's an expression of, hey, I'm not that important, and I act like it. It's one thing to think like it. That's kind of more humility. Meekness is more of an attitude and an action. And finally here he lists patience. That is really not being taken up or burdened by time. One who's patient. Now clearly the context of each of these exhortations is that of in the context of one another. This is why Paul then gives us two words, verbs, that are hanging on this, bearing with and, and forgiving. In other words, these facilitate love that God's people are called to be distinct in these ways. These are kind of the characteristics that will facilitate love, but if we don't demonstrate them. In other words, the next two words there in verse 13 is, is how those five get into action. In other words, it's the activity that we are to do. And that is, we ought to demonstrate love by bearing and forgiving one another. You see them there in verse 13? Bearing with one another, and then jumping down there halfway through the verse, verse 13, forgiving each other, those two words are really the demonstration of love. To bear with one another is to put up with somebody. If you've been in church long, uh, there's a lot of people you've got to put up with, right? I mean, look, there, we have burdens to bear. Look, you know, sometimes people aren't as spiritual as they should be. We have to bear with that. People aren't as far along in their Christian walk as they perhaps should be, and so we have to bear with that. Maybe we have to bear with somebody who's struggling, maybe struggles with depression or discouragement. Someone who we have to bear with who has sin in their life, and, and they're struggling with that sin. Maybe we have a brother or sister that we're bearing up with. The verbal idea of bearing with is to carry one's load. Oh, friend, isn't that a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us in the gospel? He says, come and follow me, take up, take up my yoke, for, 
my burden is light, right? He says it's light to follow me in that Jesus carries the burden. Remember, as Christians, we look like Jesus when we carry one another's burdens. Friend, it is burdensome to hear the confession of a brother over and over and over again in his sin. You, you just want to go up and shake him. Say, what is wrong with you? Why can't you be free of it? But you bear with their burdens. You don't cast them aside, but you bear with them. You, you help them follow Jesus. For as Christians, this is what we are called to do. Bear with one another and also forgive one another. Now, perhaps if there is an occasion to cut a verse out of your Bible, you might find the temptation to, to cut this verse out. Verse 13. Notice what he says. If one has a complaint against another. So the context of his command is that someone has a complaint against another. There is a victim in this situation, and there is an aggressor. There's someone who did something to someone else. Now, I want you to notice here that Paul doesn't qualify forgiveness, does he? Pay attention to what he says here. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. He doesn't qualify. He says, well, if they beg for mercy, if they come seeking your forgiveness, he says, forgive them, friend. Forgive them. As Christians, we ought to forgive others. And notice the basis of our forgiveness there in verse 13. Here it is. It's in the word as. That word as means like. As, like, the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. A couple things to note there. Number one, the basis of our forgiveness is that the Lord forgave you. Now I want you to think about this. The context is two Christians. Both of them, Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Both of them are saved. And one of them is withholding that which Christ gave to them. Withholding forgiveness. Jesus Christ has called us to forgive in the way that He has forgiven us. What steps did He need you to take, that you had to take in order to receive the forgiveness? What kind of begging did you have to do? What, what kind of acts of contrition did you have to do in order for Jesus to forgive you? How many? None. This means that our forgiveness of one another ought to be unconditional. We must forgive unconditionally because we have been forgiven unconditionally. But notice also what he says, so you also must forgive. He doesn't say, you know, if you get time to forgive or, you know, if you, if you get enough, you know, gumption up and you forgive. No, no, he says you must, not ought to, you must do it. In other words, you could say it this way, if you are unwilling to forgive, then perhaps you've never been forgiven by Christ. That's pretty scary. If you are unwilling to forgive someone who Jesus himself went to the cross and died, 
that makes you morally righteous and morally upright than God himself who could forgive your sins and mine. One who has experienced the joy of forgiveness is happy to share it with others. And friend, it is prideful, prideful for us to withhold something that Jesus gave us freely. To withhold something that the Lord Himself has given us and to the offender. And if God can forgive them, then so can you. Now I want you to notice one other context here, and that is one another. Now I might step on your toes here a little bit, but that's all right. Because perhaps you think, or perhaps you have a vision of Christianity that can exist apart from the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day. Perhaps your vision of Christianity is I can pop into church and pop out. You know, I do my best Christianity in a boat somewhere. Or I do my best Christianity at home. Now I want you to see something in this verse this morning that none of these are possible apart from a community of Christians. Who are you going to be kind to, yourself? Who are you going to be meek with? And humble with. Who are you going to bear up? Who are you going to forgive? Are you going to stand in the mirror? Oh, I forgive you today. Move on. No, no, no. All of this implies that we are in a family together. A messy family. Where we've got people that got problems. And we've got to love one another and bear one another up. And we've got to care for one another. And we've got to forgive one another. Friend, there's no perfect church. This ain't no perfect church, never been a perfect church, right? If you thought this place was ever a perfect church, you were just deceived, all right? There's no perfect church out there, never will be a perfect church until Jesus comes again. So these are a requirement. We ought to bear with one another. We ought to forgive one another. And first and foremost, we see we ought to love one another. This is the expression of love. This is how we love one another. This is the chief virtue, Paul says. Above all these, he says, put on love. Notice what results, verse 14. As we put on love, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, that word perfect harmony, it brings about maturity. Love is what moves us forward in maturity. You'll never be mature. Until you move into love. Love is the glue that binds all the Christian virtues together. As Paul said, if if I don't have love, then I'm just a, a noisy little instrument. I'm just making a bunch of noise. Friend, if you don't have love, you you're missing out. And therefore, as Christians, we must put a priority on love above everything else. This is the number one thing that should come in your mind every day. How am I loving my brothers and sisters in Christ today? How am I bearing them up? How am I forgiving them? Remember what Jesus taught his disciples? That the world would know who are his disciples? What? By their awesome music? By their wonderful preaching? By their wonderful buildings? By their amazing programs? But by their love for one another? See, all these things can be great and wonderful and tools that God uses to take the gospel to the nations. But if we don't have love, well, we learn in Revelation, don't we, that what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do with a church that doesn't love? 
he takes the lampstand and removes it. He takes the light out of the church. He, Jesus kills churches that don't love one another. Are we in danger of that this morning? Are we in danger of putting other things before the love that Christ has called us to? We must, brothers and sisters, put on love. But secondly, we see here in verse 15 that we must put on peace. Paul goes on to say, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Paul uses the language here of ruling, of sovereignty, that God rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. And he corresponds rule with a fascinating rule, a word, peace. We're like, God's at war, he's, at, he's ruling, but, but yet there's peace. In other words, there is harmony among the people of God as they live under the rule and reign of Jesus. This peace is the peace that has been extended to us through the gospel. We're now at peace with God, and we're at peace with one another. No longer are we at war. Notice here what Paul says, that we ought to let the, that Christ rule in our hearts. In other words, verse 15 means that we ought to let the peace of Christ control our lives, inform the way we think. In other words, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4.3, we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We ought to be peacemakers. To allow the rule of Christ, the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts means that we ought to be peacemakers, bridge builders. Friend, I wonder this morning, are you more of one that likes to blow up bridges than to build bridges with people who don't think like you or look like you? And, I, and again, the context here is Christians. Look, as Christians, we are going to disagree. As Christians, we are this, we're not about unanimity. That is, that we all look alike. I am so thankful for the expressions that people are different here. Uh, this congregation ought to be diverse not just one particular subset of humanity. It ought to be diverse, and in that diversity, we ought to work towards unity. Notice he says contextually here, verse 15, you were called in one body. In other words, you're a part of a body. Bodies don't have two heads. There's a centrality, a unity to the body of Christ, and as members of this local church, we want to work towards unity. Friends, when's the last time you were thankful for this congregation? It's interesting, in this, in this passage, twice Paul will refer to thanksgiving. One, in the attitude and expression towards one another, be thankful, and then also in gratitude towards God and Christ, that we ought to be grateful that we've been saved. We ought to be thankful for the body of Christ. You see, as a body that functions well, as we work to love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, we ought to regularly be thankful for the means of God's grace of the people around you. I mean, imagine all the things you would have to do in your Christian life if you didn't have these people helping you follow Christ. We ought to be thankful. We ought to be reminded that we are a community that is marked off by love for one another and love that results in unity. 
And as we think about this church and as we think about what we're called to together, we must evaluate everything in light of is this facilitating unity in the life of the church around the gospel or disunity? And if there's anyone seeking to be divisive, Titus reminds us, Paul reminds us to Titus, he says, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Why? Because unity will destroy a local church. Disunity, rather, will destroy a local church. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, that is leaven that leavens the whole lump. You, you let a little bit in, and it will spread like gangrene. And this is why we want to cultivate thankfulness in us. You see, when you're thankful for something, when you see this thankfulness, it, it develops a further expression of unity among us. We're reminded that we need one another. We need this body in order to follow Christ. Well, third and finally here in verses 16 through 17, we're to put on love, we're to put on peace, and finally we are to put on the Word. Paul says in verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word dwell there means to to make its home, to set up residence. That is, that the Word of Christ was to be the centerpiece of their gathered lives together. That the Word of Christ was to be at the very center of everything the congregation in Colossae did. Everything would flow out from the centerpiece of the Word of Christ. Now, notice here, he doesn't say words, plural, but the Word of Christ. In other words, Paul is referring to the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the redemptive work of Christ was to be the centerpiece of everything that that congregation did. It was to come up and show up in the centrality of their teaching and admonition. It was to show up in their singing and in their actions. Lose the gospel? You lose the church. And that's what Paul is centered on here. Notice here, to put on the Word means that we teach the Word, we sing the Word, and we live the Word. To to allow the Word to take up residence in this congregation, we must teach the Word. It was not to be relegated to some fringe corner from the fellowship. The teaching of the Word was to be central in their minds, their hearts, and their lips. What was to come from them was not man's words or man's wisdom, but the Word of Christ. That's what we hope to do here on the Lord's Day every week. In teaching you expositionally. In other words to take the point of this passage and make it the point of our gathering and to apply it to our life together as God's people. We don't come and say, I've received a word, or God spoke to me in my study this week. No, God didn't speak to me in my study this week. He never does. He only speaks to me through His Word. He only comes in revelation, in the one true revelation, which is His Word. That's where He speaks, and that's where He declares, and that's where He makes Himself known. And notice here in verse 16, they were to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Teaching is is sort of positive. They were to inform one another. Now to be clear, biblical teaching is not merely data dumping. All right? 
You've all been there, right? You've all heard the sermon where, where, where the preacher or teacher just dumps on you a bunch of facts and information about God. And you kind of wonder, does he really know God? Um, you you kind of wonder, does he really know the God he's even talking about there? Biblical teaching demands a response. Jesus never taught his disciples. Prove to me where Jesus ever taught his disciples in the Gospels and didn't demand them to respond to it. Didn't demand something of them. Didn't call them to repentance and faith. You see, biblical teaching not only teaches you facts, but applies it to our life together as God's people. And so we want to counsel one another. We want to call one another to obedience to Christ. And the second word here he uses is to admonish one another. The word literally is to kind of counsel one another. It's if you've ever been affiliated with newthetic counseling. This is where the word for newthetic counseling comes from, uh, from this word to admonish. In other words, what is on our lips when we confront positively or negatively should be the words of Christ. In other words, if, our, if a brother or sister is struggling with sin, we don't come to them and say, hey, I've got five ways that you can kill sin in your life. We go to them with the word and with an open word. And we say, look, here is how you kill sin. Let me show you how the Bible says to do that. Or if you have a, 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 a sister or brother that's prideful, you, you go to them and say, well, here's an example of Jesus who was anything but prideful and yet who was the king of glory. In other words, God's word becomes the means by which we teach and encourage and exhort one another, both positively and negatively. This implies, brothers and sisters, that we develop an attitude and posture of regularly giving and receiving godly encouragement. Secondly, we must develop a a posture where we regularly give and receive godly criticism. And this tends to be the problem, isn't it, among Christians? We're all about encouraging one another, oh, Jesus loves you, but we're very short on our admonition. If you don't repent of your sins, if you don't turn from your sin, the wrath of God is coming upon you. Brother, flee your sin. Sister, flee your sin this morning. You see, we ought to give and receive godly criticism and godly encouragement. But lastly here, or or secondly here in this particular aspect of, of putting on the Word of Christ, notice what he says. We ought to also teach and admonish one another singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. That is, the singing of God's people ought to be central to the Word of God's people. You know, so often you'll hear well-meaning Christians talk about worship in the gathered church. Oh, we did worship and then we listened to a sermon. They're not like competing... uh, ministries of the church. It's not like, you know, we've got the singing ministry and the word ministry. No, 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 no. Notice here, all of it falls under the head of the word ministry. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing, and singing. They're all together. It's not that we do worship and then we do sermon time. And negatively, let me say it this way, some of you may just gather and say, all I want is a good sermon. But friend, that is not the Christian perspective here. 
Let me just say a few things about singing. Number one, maybe you're here this morning and you claim the name of Christ and you're like, singing's not for me. Let me encourage you in a couple ways. Number one, you were created to sing. You were created to sing. So to stand here and say that you can't sing is for you to stand before God and say, God, you failed in creating me. Not only that, we're compelled to sing. Notice what he says here in this verse. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We get, we get here to sing, not because we're good at singing. All right? I'm not good at singing, all right? I love to sing, but I sing because I'm compelled to sing. Now, it's like can't wait to sing with God's people about the glories of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're compelled to sing. The gospel, see, what happened to Paul and Silas when they were locked up in prison? Were they just like, you know, poor pitiful us? What did they do? They sang. Why? Because they knew, though they were chained, they were free men. They were compelled to sing. And the gospel compels us to sing. And perhaps you don't sing when we gather on the Lord's Day because you've never truly experienced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you've truly experienced the saving worth of Christ, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and now are alive in Christ, friend, you'll get a little excited on Sunday morning to hear about all I have is Christ. Not only that, we're commanded to sing. We are commanded to sing. Look at that word again. He doesn't say, if you can sing in the choir, you need to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. If you're gifted at singing, then, then friend, use your gift. No, that's not what he says at all, is it? He commands us to sing. It's not optional. It's not that you just slip in for the sermon time. It's that you are commanded to sing because of the great things God has done for you. About to sing a variety of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing ought to be informed by the Word of Christ. It's not separate from. And this is one of the wonderful things about hymns in the life of the church. Historically, Christians have used song to teach, to teach doctrine, to teach truth. There was a season in the life of, of, the, of the church where we didn't have printed Bibles where we could go home and study. And so Luther would teach, a mighty fortress is our God, and teach his congregation so that when they were in the factory or in the field or in their homes, they would be reminded of the truth of the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Singing is important. Let me encourage you to see it as a priority when we gather, to sing loudly, to sing confidently because of the great things God has done for you in Christ. Finally here, we ought not to only teach the Word and sing the Word. We ought to finally, verse 17, live the Word. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do something in the name of the Lord Jesus is to do it as a representative of Jesus. Can I do this activity or say this word and say it that Jesus is the one who said it? Can I participate in some activity or, or, or be a part of something and say that Jesus was a part of that? There's a lot of activity that you and I participate. A lot of things we say throughout the week that we wouldn't want the name of Jesus anywhere near it. 
But Paul here exhorts us to put on the word of Christ by living in light of it. Paul would say it this way, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's what he's saying here. Everything we do ought to speak about the word. How often our lives actually work against the gospel that we want to share. Friend, let me commend us this morning in every action, whether it's spoken or a deed done, let us do it under the guiding influence of the lordship of of Jesus Christ. As believers, let us speak and act as representatives of King Jesus. Let our lives be informed by the putting on of love. Let our lives be a reflection of the love of Christ for us, expressed by bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Let us put on the peace of Christ and live in harmony with one another, working to love one another and to build unity among God's people. And let us put on the word of Christ, teach it to one another, sing it to one another, and live it for God's glory among one another. Let's pray. Father, we pray.